It's the end of the world as we know it, and I feel fine. That crazy starts with an earthquake, birds, snakes, and aeroplanes. Many fruits are not afraid. I have a machine, listen to yourself, the world, with its own needs. Something in your own head, beat it up, and I've seen got no sheets. The land of fucking with the fear fight down, like fire in a fire. Mr. Sister, Southern Gang, the government for hiring the combat site. But you wasn't coming in a hurry, the jury beat it down your neck. Welcome to the Doom and Bloom Hour with medical preparedness experts, Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. Your source for information on how to succeed if everything else fails. And now, your hosts, Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. dark heart of the city, a mysterious figure known as Dr. Bones. This is the Hour of Doom. And Bloom. That's right. (laughs) It's the Survival Medicine Hour. (laughs) That's right, the Doom and Bloom Survival Medicine Hour, friends and neighbors. And we are a minute moment of magnanimity in a mendacious world. I bet oh. you can't say that again. I bet I can't either, and so I'm not going to try. I'm Joe Alton, MD. Also, I can say that. I'm also known as Dr. Bones of doomandbloom.net, where you'll find over a 1,000 videos, posts, podcasts, all sorts of stuff on medical preparedness for any disaster. And I'm Amy Alton. I'm an advanced registered nurse practitioner and a certified nurse midwife, and also known as Nurse Amy. That's right, and together we are the dynamic duo, the prodigious pair, the beauty and the beast. I think I'm that beautiful, though. <laughs> I don't know if I'm that beautiful. Well, <laughs> I don't know. My hair looks kind of funky. I was out watering the garden. You look like a chicken, not a beast, I do, though. I do look like a chicken. <laughs> and we're here to help you keep it together, even if everything else falls apart. Friends and neighbors, have you been injured in an accident with a pernicious porcupine? Well, our attorney says, don't call me. Call Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. And listen to this. All information given and opinions voiced on Dr. Bones and Nursing Muse Survival Medicine Hour are for entertainment purposes only and do not represent medical advice for anything other than post-apocalyptic settings. No contract or provider-patient relationship exists or is implied between the hosts and listeners. Dr. Bones and Nursing Muse strongly urge their audience to seek modern and standard medical care whenever and wherever it is available. That's right. What's the matter with you? Seek modern and standard medical care. But. Yes. But when the miracle of modern medicine isn't immediately at hand, what are you going to do to keep your family healthy if some disaster knocks you off the grid? If you don't have the supplies, if you don't have the education, could you survive a true catastrophe? Now, if you do have these things, you might just keep it together in times of trouble. You could do some good even in bad times. So show the world you got more sense than the Lord gave a duck. 
and get the training you need. And while you're at it, how about a quality medical kit as well? Well, I can't think of a better place to get that kit than Nurse Amy's entire line of often imitated, never equaled medical kits at store.doomandbloom.net. They'll help you deal with medical issues you'll face in any disaster. They'll make your home, your workplace, your school, your church safer. It's getting to be warmer out at your camp if you go camping with the family. Yes. And they're designed by an honest-to-gosh medical doctor and advanced registered nurse practitioner. Compare our kits for contents, quality, and cost with anybody else's stuff, and you'll agree that our kits are what you should have in your medical storage. You want more proof? Check out our testimonials page at store.doomandbloom.net and see what folks just like you have to say about our medical kits and service. On top of all that, our kits are approved for your health or flexible savings accounts. Just look at our special HSA FSA section in the store. Hey, we learn as much from you as you do from us. That's sad. Sad to say, Aww. in a way, you know, actually, it's really good that we it's learn so much exchange. from people. No, yeah. It's a good exchange. That's right. I'm so, happy. So why not connect with the geezer and the goddess? <laughs> Absolutely. It's so easy. And here's Nurse Amy to tell you how. You can contact us anytime by email at drbonespodcast at aol.com. Find us on Facebook at our group, Survival Medicine, DR Bones, and Nurse Amy. You can also like, subscribe, friend. I'm not sure what they're calling it these days on Facebook. The Doom and Bloom page. That's That's a one-stop shopping. You can also follow us on Twitter at Prepper Show. And don't forget our YouTube channel. I just put another video up about 10 minutes ago. That's right. At DR Bones Nurse Amy YouTube channel. I remember... You can sign up for our RSS feed on doomandbloom.net. And also, every one of these social media, the YouTube, all of that stuff, all has a little icon at the top of Doom and Bloom. So if you forget it, haven't written it down, it's easy to get to. Top of doomandbloom.net. And did I mention that you can find a lot of our articles in great magazines right on your bookshelf at your local Barnes & Noble or your even your local we grocery store? We said a grocery store, store right? Yeah, that's right. That's right. <laughs> Publix. Magazines like Backwoods Home, American Survival Guide. Recently, uh, Survivor's Edge has been very gracious to publish some of our articles, so we are very thankful to them. And we're also thankful to Wes Peters of Gold Wealth Management Company. When it comes to survival and being prepared, you know that the must-have items that immediately come to mind are a complete medical kit and a bug-out bag. Our friends at Gold Wealth Management remind us to have our bug-out bank in place as well. Your bug-out bank should contain physical gold and silver along with three months of living expenses in cash. Call Gold Wealth Management to get a free education about investing in gold and silver. At current prices, the gold and silver market is on sale. Call 866-GLD-SLVR, gold silver. That's 866-GLD-SLVR or 866-453-7587. One last little plug, and that is for our book. That book is sold very well. Alton's Antibiotics and Infectious Disease, The Layman's Guide to Available Antibacterials in Austere Settings. Ever wondered what to do with those fish antibiotics everybody says you should have? Well, find out from the first doctor to ever write about them. Infectious disease is nothing to sneeze at, and the information in our book, In Wise Hands, well, it might just save some who otherwise wouldn't survive in times of trouble. You haven't read a book like this from any other medical professional. This is not stuff you'll learn at your CERT class, and I guarantee you don't have a book like this right now in your survival library. 
That is, unless you bought this book. Uh, you're going to find out about all sorts of infectious diseases, how to use antibiotics wisely, the individual antibiotics, and the individual diseases that each one treats, including dosing, side effects, allergies, pregnancy, and pediatric considerations, and much, much more things about sick rooms, expiration dates, wound care, all sorts of stuff. You've been looking for a book like Alton's Antibiotics and Infectious Disease for a long time, and you will not regret having it, I guarantee it, in your survival library. Remember, our books are meant for situations where there isn't a functioning modern medical system. If there is, get to a certified medical professional ASAP. You know, we like to talk about all sorts of things that come up in the news, things that might have some kind of relevance to survival situations. And one of them, of course, is the safety of food. In off-grid settings, you can expect there to be all sorts of concerns about food preparation. There will be outbreaks of bacterial disease, and they can occur even in the most developed country due to contamination. A recent example is the salmonella outbreak that sickened close to 100 people in nine states, putting 23 of them in the hospital. And the culprit this time appears to be pre-cut melon from Kato Foods, C-A-I-T-O, the kind that's sold in those plastic clamshell-looking containers and sold at places where you probably shop, Walmart, Kroger, Whole Foods, Target, and others. The recalled products include watermelon, honeydew, cantaloupe, and this is not even the first salmonella outbreak in the last year. This is the second. There was one linked to pre-cut melon from Cato Foods all the way back in June of 2018. It sickened 77 people, hospitalized 36, a really high 46.7% rate of hospitalization, something unusual for salmonella over, again, nine states. Salmonella is a gram-negative bacteria, and it's in the family Enterobacteriaceae, and the species involved in this outbreak appears to be a subtype of Salmonella enterica, although it's uncertain if it's the kind that causes typhoid fever, which is something that Salmonella is very well known for. Since a medic in a survival setting is likely to confront diseases that are related to bad sanitation, bad hygiene, things like typhoid fever, I think we should talk about it just a little bit. Now, it's also known as simply as typhoid. It's a bacterial infection that's due to a particular bacterial subtype of Salmonella enterica. That is called Salmonella typhi. Typhoid is spread by eating or drinking food or water that's contaminated with the feces of an infected person. Now, the epidemic disease most associated with Salmonella typhoid fever was first visualized in 1880 by Carl Eberth in the spleens of typhoid patients, I'm assuming dead typhoid patients. Four years later, a scientist named George Theodore Gafke was able to successfully grow colonies of the bacteria. The bacteria was first named Hog Cholera, uh, Hog cholera Bacillus, Hog Cholera Bacillus, because it was originally thought to be the cause of an infectious disease called cholera in hogs, uh, similar to the human cholera disease that has killed so many over the years. Eventually, however, the name was changed to Salmonella after Daniel Elmer Salmon, a veterinary pathologist in the U.S. Department of Agriculture. It probably annoyed Carl Eberth, I guess, to no end, since he saw it years before Salmon did. <laughs> so it should have been called Eberth, Eberthella, I guess. That's funny. So in typhoid fever, we're not going to cry about that. 
No. Poor, poor Carl. But um, Neither of them know it anymore. That's right. In typhoid fever, there is an incubation period. It averages about 8 to 14 days. And after a gradual onset of high fevers over several days, you see abdominal pain, intestinal hemorrhage, weakness, headaches, constipation, and bloody diarrhea. These are things that you might see. A number of people develop a spotty sort of rose-colored rash. And these symptoms seem similar at first glance to another epidemic disease called typhus. Hence, in a typhoid, like someone who looks humid is called human, is called humanoid. So, typhus, typhoid, human, humanoid. So that means that it looks like typhus. Now, typhus, by the way, is raging through the homeless population in Los Angeles right at this moment. It's caused, however, by a different type of bacteria called rickettsia that's transmitted by flea bites. That's one of the main differences, the most common way to get typhoid fever is contaminated food or water. Typhoid fever seems to appear in several week-long stages. Stage one, the patient develops a high fever that usually peaks in the afternoon, gets a cough and a headache. Some experience bleeding from the nose. A drop in the heart rate is something that you also see also. Now, that's a very unusual finding in people who have fever, right? When you have a fever, your pulse is sort of racing. Right. So instead of having tachycardia, a fast pulse, you have bradycardia, a slow pulse. So that's stage one. Stage two, the fever remains elevated, and if untreated, the patient becomes delirious and begins to have altered mental status. You get these rose-colored spots on the lower chest and the abdomen in about a third of patients, and you get this foul-smelling green diarrhea that reminds people of pea soup, Then, and you often see that at this stage. Uh, you get weight loss, as you can imagine, as the abdomen becomes more affected. And, of course, you also see a enlargement of organs due to inflammation, like an enlarged liver or an enlarged spleen. In stage three, you start getting damage to the intestines that leads to bleeding or perforation of the wall. This is in people that are not treated. An infection of blood called septicemia then occurs, and the lining of the abdomen becomes inflamed. That causes something called peritonitis, which is some of the inflammation that occurs when you have things like appendicitis. Blood clotting factors become depleted. That leads to more bleeding, and the patient mental status worsens. And, well, uh, about 12 to 30 percent of untreated sufferers, remember I say untreated, don't survive beyond this point. Stage four, the fever slowly reduces in those people that survive to the fourth week, but intestinal and mental effects, well, they can persist for months. The victim looks emaciated, may still harbor the organism as a carrier. And if you're going to treat this with an antibiotic, you're going to want to use ciprofloxacin, also known as fish flocks, and, or cipro, and azithromycin is another alternative, otherwise known as birdzithro or zithromax. Survival rate if you treat this patient, is actually more than 99%. So before antibiotics and before intravenous hydration to deal with uh, dehydration, 12 to 30% death rate, now less than 1%. People may carry, as I said, people may carry the bacterium for typhoid without being affected. They're, however, they're still able to spread the disease to others. You may have heard of the case of typhoid Mary. Typhoid Mary was a cook around the year 1900 for several families in the, I believe the, I believe it was New York, who spread the disease in contaminated food, but she never felt sick herself. So she never had any compunction against when she was 
fired from one job to go to another job until they finally arrested her and actually put her in a sanitarium where she had to spend years. Salmonella is to blame for a million cases of foodborne illness in the U.S. every year, according to the CDC, and tens of millions worldwide. They usually invade only the gastrointestinal tract, unless you're untreated, in which case it goes right into your bloodstream over the course of time. Uh, Although salmonella infection usually sends about 2% of the sufferers to the hospital, the current outbreak and the June outbreak of 2018 have had a much higher rate. I wonder if it could have mutated to become more severe. Yeah, it's definitely possible. It's something that happens often with viruses. It also happens with bacteria. They develop bacterial resistance, especially with the indiscriminate use of antibiotics. So you have to be wondering whether there's a worse kind of salmonella out here. The good news is that if the bacteria doesn't excrete too many toxins, most people will recover on their own and maybe not even with antibiotics. Patients who experience severe diarrhea, however, or who are very young or very old, wind up in the hospital, and if they're not treated, especially with intravenous fluids, well, the illness can be deadly. Luckily, in developed countries, that type of death is very, very unusual. Now, infectious diseases have history-changing consequences. I'm sure you've all heard of the Black Plague and know what it has done Mm -hmm. to the history of Europe, especially in the 13th. And for, uh, in the 14th century, I think in the year in the 1300s, there were multiple outbreaks and multiple pandemics of this disease that killed off, I think, a third of the population of Europe. But salmonella has done so also. As a matter of fact, a salmonella outbreak appears to have caused the collapse of Aztec society in ancient Mexico. Now, that was after the Spanish conquest. Well, it's hard to say why that happened or if it would have happened if indeed the Spanish hadn't come and conquered them, I believe it probably had something to do with the chaos that followed it and the fact that they probably couldn't have decent sanitation and had terrible hygiene probably caused it, but it ended them basically. The Spanish conquest crippled them and the society was ended by a catastrophic salmonella outbreak. So, Here's a distribution outbreak put together by the Food and Drug Administration, which makes an effort to identify affected stores and products whenever there is a dangerous infection that may be going around. So remember, we're talking about pre-cut melon products, and you'll find them at Whole Foods. And the states that are involved are Illinois and Wisconsin. The brand is sold under the Whole Foods market label, and I think that it's uh, the use-by date is 419 or before. Kroger in the states are in uh, Illinois, Indiana, Kentucky, Michigan, Ohio, Tennessee, and West Virginia. So that means our Kroger in Tennessee may have some of these pre-cut products. And the brand is sold under a generic label that will say distributed by Renaissance Food Group. Well, that is pretty crazy. And used by dates are April 14th. Uh, Target States involved, Illinois, and it's sold under something, a brand called Garden Highway, uh, with used by dates of 418 or 419. At Trader Joe's, uh, the states involved are Iowa, Illinois, Indiana, Kansas, Kentucky, Michigan, Minnesota, Missouri, wow, Nebraska, Ohio, Wisconsin, sold under the Trader Joe's brand, 419, used by date. 
Walmart, Illinois, Missouri, Ohio, Michigan sold under freshness guaranteed under that label. I doubt it. Uh, Best Buy, 418, and a number of independent grocers in places like North Carolina, Illinois, Indiana, Kentucky, Michigan, Missouri, New York, Ohio, and Pennsylvania, usually under some generic label that we'll say somewhere distributed by Cato Foods. So, you know, I'm sort of amazed. amazed Cato Foods? Yeah. C A I T O Foods. I guess Wasn't it's he Kato. the one that was like best friends with OJ Simpson? Cato. Oh, Cato Kalen. Remember? Yes. He was yes. like friends. Spelled differently, but Kato, it is Cato. You're right. I'm not sure Cato knew where he was half the time, though. I think he was doing. He's a, a lot, stoner, man. A lot of. Yes. <laughs> he was a stoner. Some some sort of drugs. <laughs> you know what really amazes me about this outbreak and what you learn from this is mm-hmm. that all these different brands that I mentioned are all coming from the same place. That's crazy. Isn't that something? I mean, could I approach Cato Foods and say that I'm opening a chain of grocery stores called uh, Dr. Bones Good Eats? And, I don't know. You know, and, and get pre-cut melon from them uh, without any idea of whether the food is safe or not? Probably. I don't know. It's crazy. It is a little bit scary, guys. Or just get the meat and put it under your own brand name. <laughs> wow. Prob- probably, because they had different brand names, right? Yes, they all had br- different brand okay, names. Okay, so they, they'll do branding. So we could do Alton's Meats or whatever. <laughs> Alton's hopefully antibiotic free yes. meats. Or that actually sounds kind of cool. Alton's salmonella no. contaminated no. pre cut melon. No. How about that one? <laughs> yeah. Unbelievable. Well, I want to talk a little bit about major disasters. I think I did a article just recently. Mm-hmm. I don't know, it hasn't come out yet in Survivor's Edge, but on triage emergencies. And when we talk about triage emergencies, we're usually talking about situations where there's some kind of mass casualty event. So let's talk a little bit about that. A major disaster is certainly something you don't ever want to see, but it can easily take away access, I'm sure you agree, to functioning modern medical systems. I mean, look at Katrina and how the flooding made it difficult for medical personnel to get to the people that needed help. And in that circumstance, well, caring for the sick and injured becomes the responsibility of some brave soul with some knowledge, medical knowledge, right. and maybe a little training and hopefully some surprise supplies. And that brave soul, well, it's probably going to be you. <laughs> yes. Guess. Yes. Even in bad times, you know, a caregiver's responsibility usually involves just dealing with one person at a time, right? There's one person that's sick or one person got an injury. And or one child or a husband or wife, I mean, well, one person. Right, and, and you just deal with that one at a time. However, there could come a day when all hell breaks loose and you're confronted with multiple casualties as once, at once, and we call that a mass casualty incident, or MCI. And an MCI is pretty much any event in which the existing medical resources are just inadequate for the number and severity of injuries that have been incurred. Situations where this might be the case include, gosh, just about anything from a multi-car accident. It could be a major epidemic. Could be, gosh, could be a nuclear detonation. A dam could break. I mean, mm-hmm. who knows? Could be just about anything. And 
The thing is, is that if it's even a building, a building collapsing, right? Sure. From snow, just like, from a winter storm. Exactly. And the thing is, is that if you have a small town, you live in a small town where there has one ambulance and one traffic light. Right. Well, you know, even a multi-car accident with three people that are injured might overwhelm that municipality's ability to respond to it. Absolutely. So. When your ability to handle medical emergencies is limited, you got to make tough choices as to which victim gets help first. And how do you make that decision? The process of assigning priorities is called triage, from the French word trier, which means to sort. So you're sorting people, basically. And the goal of triage in a mass casualty incident is to do the most good for the most people. Now, note, I'm not saying do the best possible care for every victim. You're not doing that. You're doing the most good for the most people. There are five S's, the letter S, five S's to successful triage. The first person to respond to the scene of a mass casualty incident essentially becomes the incident commander. If you read the FEMA the person in charge. FEMA charts, you know there's an incident commander. And you're it, it could be you until someone with more medical expertise arrives. If you're the medic for a survival group when there is no functioning modern medical system, well, you are the incident commander, period. Let's say you are the guy. And what do you do? Your initial actions have to comprise the five S's. First S, safety. You have to assess the safety of the situation. Your first impulse, that's going to be to rush right in and try to help the people that are injured. That's very commendable. I'm proud of you, except that it's very foolhardy. The primary goal of the first responder should be self-preservation. I mean, if you enter a mass casualty scene when the threat is still active, that's likely to result in even more casualties, and one of those casualties is most likely going to be you. Now, there is a nefarious method. I mean, people that are ill-intentioned, they actually take and this... Evil. Ne- and evil. And evil. And evil. Take this natural tendency we have to try to help people because that's that's normal human nature is to try and help people even if you're not sure what to do just putting your hand on someone's shoulder and saying i'm here for you i'm going to do my best to help you even if the person looks unconscious they might actually hear you so even if you don't have training and not sure what you're doing just human instinct to go in and and just try to do anything you can including just comforting people. If that's all you know how to do or all you feel you can do, at least do that. It's just a natural thing. But the thing is, is that some people take that. Right, because they know And they use that to their advantage because they know that that's what we'd like to do. And so there is a nefarious method employed by terrorists. They've done this in Israel for many years. And what they do is they detonate a primary and then a secondary bomb. Primary bomb usually causes the most injuries and deaths, but a short time later, when the ambulances arrive and when uh, people are there to help, on the scene, a, right. right, a secondary bomb explodes oh. to kill, especially emergency personnel that are assisting the wounded. It's a huge morale destroyer. Horrible. I mean, it's been suggested that both the World Trade Center attack on 9-11 and maybe even the Boston Marathon bombings in 2013 may have been intended as some kind of sequential event like this. So it's the first plane lands or lands, crashes into the World Trade Tower. Right. And then a period for a period of time, all the police are arriving, all the firemen are arriving, 
and then the second plane crashes into the other tower. In the Boston Marathon bombings, there was a bomb that went off first, and then 12 seconds later, a second bomb. Now, that's probably too short a time to for first responders. EMTs and, right, and just, just bystanders. To, to arrive. Although there were EMTs right there because it was near the finish line. But what I'm saying with regards to that one is that I think they may had have had some problems, I guess, timing it perfectly. So now, they would probably have wanted to that do they, that maybe a few minutes later. You think they wanted to delay it until yes. more people arrived on that scene. Exactly. Ugh. Because the guys that did it actually admitted that they were reading a Al-Qaeda, Al- Al-Qaeda mm-hmm. magazine that, I forget what it's called, but there is an Al-Qaeda magazine that you, that you can get that in, in the Middle East somewhere, I guess. But it tells you exactly how to do it, and the timing, I guess, Ugh. was off for these guys. So that's safety. You have to assess the safety. That's the first S. The second S is sizing up the scene. you got to ask yourself the following questions. What's the situation? Is there a building on fire? Was there a mass transit crash? An active shooter event? How many injuries are there? How severe are the injuries? Are there a few victims? Are there dozens of victims? Are they all together? Or are they spread out over this huge area? Are there avenues to transport people away from the scene and for medical personnel to get to the scene? So that's number two. Then, then with all that information, then if possible, you want to send for help. To send information. Uh, if a functioning modern medical system exists, call 911 concisely reveal the pertinent information about the mass casualty incident. You want to include the nature of the incident, the location, the number of victims that need medical assistance, and any special equipment needed. Here's an example. Hello, I am calling to report a multi-vehicle auto accident at the intersection of Hollywood and Vine. That's the location. There you go. And that's the type of uh, event that it is. At least seven people are injured and will require medical attention. There may be people trapped in their cars. One vehicle is on fire. Aha! So, in just a few sentences, you've informed the authorities that a mass casualty event has occurred, what type of event it was, where it occurred, an approximate number of people that need medical help, and the types of care or equipment that might be required to help these people. Now, of course, off the grid, there's no ambulance heading in your direction. You're going to need a method of communication, though, to let others in your group know that help is needed. So you need a walkie-talkie, perhaps a whistle even would be a useful item to have. With whistles, three short blasts is recognized as a distress call, I think internationally, as a matter of fact. Now, the fourth S is set up. You want to determine likely areas for the injured to be further evaluated and and treated. So want to see where you where do you want to put the walking wounded where do you want to put people that are really injured where do you want people that may die they actually in hurricane katrina they actually had people that they did not expect to live they moved these people to an area where they could i guess die in peace without causing a great deal of fear and chaos among the survivors and so setup is very very important and, of course, if you're blessed with lots of help at the scene, well, you, you can assign duties. Uh, you could assign duties for pe- to people to tri- uh, triage, to treat people with injuries, uh, and maybe transport people out if that's what needs to be done. And the fifth S is called START, S-T-A-R-T. That's a mnemonic that 
says primary triage. Basically, simple S-T-A-R-T means simple triage and rapid treatment. And the first round of triage should always be fast, 30 seconds per victim if you can, if at all possible. Does not involve excessive extensive treatment of injuries. Should be focused on identifying a priority level for every patient. Now, triage levels, evaluation of primary triage is pretty much quickly evaluating breathing, the number of respirations per minute or the lack thereof, perfusion, pulses and the adequacy of circulation, Mm -hmm. and mental status. Other than controlling massive bleeding and clearing airways, there's not a lot of treatment that's performed in primary triage because you got to act fast. Uh, There is no international standard for these triage levels, but they're usually classified by color or by number. Immediate or first priority, uh, sometimes they use a red tag if you have an actual commercially made casualty card. The the victim needs immediate medical care, will not survive if not treated quickly. So if you've got somebody that's bleeding heavily or somebody with major internal bleeding, well, this person has top priority for treatment. A yellow tag, that was a red tag. Now, a yellow tag or a second priority is also known as a delayed priority. Uh, The victim needs medical care within a period of time, maybe two hours or so, uh, but the injury is not life-threatening at this very moment. Injuries may become life-threatening if ignored, but they can wait until the red tags have been treated. For example, if you had an open fracture without any major bleeding, you're just laying there, you're otherwise able to function, Right. well, you know, you can wait there for a short period of time. Now, green tag, that, so that was yellow tag or second priority. Third priority or green tag is minimal. And these people are generally stable and ambulatory. They can walk, walking wounded, but they may need some medical help. And then, of course, there's the fourth priority, and that's what we call the black tag. And those are people that are deceased or expected to be deceased in a very short time, the victim is either deceased or not expected to live, period. So if there was an open fracture of the skull with brain damage, multiple penetrating chest wounds, things like that, well, certainly in situations where there isn't an advanced uh, intensive care unit, these right people... Right around the corner. These, literally right, two right. minutes away. Right. These people yeah. are not going to survive. Right. Of course... I doubt you're going to have casualty triage tags in your pocket when when a mass casualty incident occurs. In that case, I hope you'll have a marker or a pen always with you. You want to mark victims with numbers. One on their forehead for immediate priority, red. Two for delayed, yellow. Three for minimal, green. And four for expectant. And knowledge of this system actually allows a caregiver to make clear to others the urgency of a patient's situation. You should know that without medical care, a lot of these red tags that I'm talking about, even some yellow tags, are going to be really black tags, or they will be black tags in a very short period of time because you don't have the ability to do much for them. It's going to be difficult to save someone who's bleeding internally without operating on them, for example. Oh, gosh. I can't even imagine. That's the thing. So let's see. How are you going to evaluate these people that quickly. So what we're going to do is teach you the RPMs. RPMs stand for respirations, pulse perfusion, 
That's P, R, R is respirations, P is pulse perfusion, and M, mental status. Respirations, is your patient breathing? If not, what you need to do is tilt the head back and lift the chin. In other words, do the, the open airway maneuver that you've learned in CPR. If you do that, that person should start breathing again if they're alive. If they don't start breathing, well, they are considered to be dead and you mark them black. So if you have them, however, if you have airways on you, you have your medical bag with you, you can place an airway and see what happens. Now, one thing about a mass casualty situation, if you have a lot of victims that need to be seen very quickly, the rule against moving the neck of a victim due to the risk of cervical spine injury is temporarily suspended. Now, normal times when you have help coming, that may or may not be the case. And in survival situations, definitely is the case. Don't worry about the cervical spine. I hate to say that, but you basically need to know, is this person going to breathe? If you have an open airway and no breathing, that victim is tagged black. If they breathe once an airway is restored, or if they're breathing more than 30 times a minute, that's a fast heart uh, respiration rate, those people need immediate help. Tag them red. If respirations are less than 30 per minute, move on to the next part of RPM, which is P, pulse and perfusion. You want to determine the adequacy of circulation. So you check for a wrist pulse, which usually indicates, if it's there, a blood pressure of at least 80 or more. Another rapid test is called the capillary refill time. What you do is you press on a nail bed or a finger pad, press firmly, and then quickly remove. What happens is the color usually blanches under the pressure, turns white under the pressure, and then it returns to normal color in less than two seconds if the circulation is okay. Now, if you have trouble feeling a pulse or it takes longer than two seconds for nail bed color to return, tag that person red. If a pulse is present and the capillary refill time is normal, you move on to mental status. Can the victim follow simple commands? For example, squeeze my hand or blink your eyes. I mean, if the patient isn't breathing excessively fast, has normal perfusion and on a pulse, but is unconscious or disoriented, that person's tagged red. And if they can understand you, though, and follow commands, well, this is somebody that can't get up, and so you tag them yellow because you don't know why they can't get up yet. If they can get up and they become, they become part of the walking wounded and they're tagged green, it might be easier to remember RPMs by just thinking this. 32 can do. So in other words, 30 respirations a minute, or more, red tag, more than two seconds, capillary refill time, red tag, can't do, or if can do follows commands, that's good, but can't do, well, that's another red as well. So 32 can or can't do. By using RPMs, you can assess a triage level in probably 30 seconds or less. Any one failed RPM check tags the victim as red. So if you see somebody that is not is breathing 30 times a minute or more, that person's red, period, okay, regardless of what the other tests say. Always tag the highest priority triage level. If you have a, a doubt as to whether uh, someone is yellow or red, you always tag them red. Over triage is a better thing to do than under triage. Once you have identified someone's triage level, you want to tag or mark them and move immediately to the next patient 
unless you have an airway that needs to be cleared or major bleeding to stop. You want to elevate the legs 12 inches above the level of the heart if you suspect shock. And oftentimes these people will be in shock. It depends on the, the injury. Other than these interventions, though, very little treatment is performed in primary triage. So let's go through an example of a mass casualty incident and discuss how you would perform primary triage. Here's our scenario. The you-know-what has hit the fan, and the community that you've joined has had encounters with a belligerent group. Suddenly, there's an explosion in the middle of town, maybe near the marketplace, and you are the first to arrive at the scene. There are a dozen people that are down. What do you do? Now, you refer back to the five S's. Let's say that you have already determined the safety of the current situation. It looks like whatever has happened has happened. doesn't seem to be anything else there. are No suspicious packages on the ground or anything like that. Let's say you've sized up the scene. There's, it's obvious there's been an explosion and there's no current threat. The injuries were significant. The people are all in one area, let's say no larger than about 20 yards. Let's say could be a couple of hand grenades you know, that were thrown into the area or a bomb that was just left in the, uh, on the street there. The incident occurred on a main thoroughfare, so there are ways in and there are ways out. Now, you have sent for help on your walkie-talkie and you've described the scene and several of your group members have replied they're on the way. The area is relatively open, so you can set up a number of different areas for various triage categories. Now you can start, that's the fifth S, simple triage and rapid treatment. You begin by using what I call voice triage. You announce clearly you are here to help and say, if you can walk and need medical attention, come to the sound of my voice. Now, that will identify most of the green tags or walking wounded, although some, I guess, of the more seriously injured may have the fortitude to walk. Most of them will remain on the ground. Remember, they, they're in a, a form of shock. One or two, let's say, of your people appear shaken but uninjured. What you do is you ask anybody that looks like they can to help, they can help you, ask them to help by following you. Assign a specific area for those people that have minor injuries, have an area for the walking wounded, move them over that way, and quickly move on to the victims that were unable to get up. As you go from patient to patient, stay calm, identify who you are, and that you are here to help. Speak clearly. It was an explosion. Some people may have trouble hearing. So stay organized. Start with whoever is closest. If You can't just look at a whole area and just pick and choose who to go see, you're probably going to miss somebody if you do that. So just start with whoever is closest. Your job is to use your RPMs to find out who's going to need help most urgently. You're going to want to find those red tags. And you're lucky seven out of the 12 victims, most from the periphery of the blast, sit up when they hear your voice. At least they try to get up. Six of them can and they are able to go to the area that you have designated for the walking wounded. Now, these people they have cuts and scrapes. A couple of them are limping. One has obviously broken an arm. Uh, you have one guy who's bruised but sturdy, and he says he's willing to help. And that leaves about a half dozen people on the ground. And remember, you're triaging. You're not treating. The only treatments in START, S-T-A-R-T, will be the control of heavy bleeding, opening airways, and elevating the legs in case of shock. 
Any one failed RPM test, as I said before, marks a victim as a red tag, immediate priority, or priority number one. Finally, here's your six patients on the ground in order. First one you get to is a male in his 30s. He complains of pain. He's got an obviously fractured left leg. Mm -hmm. His respirations are 24 per minute. Pulse is strong. CRT is only one second. No excessive bleeding. So he passes all RPM tests, but he can't get up. What is his designation? Yellow. That's he right. Can, he can wait. He isn't going to die in the next few minutes. Exactly right. Because he had a good CRT, especially. Right. His treatment of his broken leg can be delayed for a period of time. The fact that he complains of pain. Notice he's I didn't, talking. He's talking. <laughs> so his mental status is automatically indeed. judged. Right? There you go. Go on to the next victim. You got a male in his 20s. He's got a head wound. His respirations are absent. You reposition his airway via lifting his, uh, tilting his head back and lifting his chin. Still no breathing. This person is... Absolutely black. Right. He's dead. Move on. Now, your third victim is a teenage girl that's bleeding heavily from her right thigh. Her respirations are 32. Her pulse is weak, but there, her CRT is three seconds, though. That's more than slow. two seconds. Mm-hmm. Tries to follow commands. This is a person who's going to require immediate inter- intervention to stop bleeding. Remember... Stopping bleeding is one of the interventions that you can. So this is a red. Absolutely red. Absolutely red tag. You don't have your medical kit with you, so you sacrifice your assistant who applies pressure to the wound, and you sacrifice your belt to improvise a tourniquet. So that person is designated red, but you have to move on. You don't have an assistant anymore. The fourth one is another teenage girl. She's got a small laceration on her forehead, and she braces herself on her arms but she just cannot move her legs. Says she can't move her legs. So she's communicating. Her mental status is good. Respirations are 20. Her pulse is strong. Mm-hmm. CRT is one second. This victim likely has a spinal injury. Well, she's not going to die immediately from that, so I would say yellow. So she is indeed yellow. She passes all three RPMs. She has <clears throat> a major problem. Oh, absolutely. And her... But it... Long-term survival. Probably won't kill her right this minute. Exactly. The person who's bleeding needs serious help. Is is a a higher priority than this young lady. Right. You go on to the next victim, a female in her 40s. She's got second-degree burns on her face and neck. Mm -hmm. Her respirations are 22. Her pulse present. CRT, 1.5 seconds. She asked to get up. Wow. Okay. She can walk. She's limping, but she can walk. So she is a designation... Absolutely green. Green. She becomes one of the walking wounded. Walking wounded. wounded. And so, and and it's hard to say, you know, in an explosion, she may not have heard what you were saying Mm -hmm. to begin with. That's true. Or she might have just been so shocked by the actual event that took her a while to sort of get her act together. So that could possibly be it. Now, your last victim is an elderly woman. She's bleeding from an amputated right arm at the elbow. Oh, my gosh. Her respirations are 36. Pulse on the other wrist is absent. CRT, three seconds, unresponsive. This person is... Clearly red. Clearly red, absolutely. Help, help, (laughs) help. And you stop and indeed try to stop the hemorrhage. That's one of the things that you do indeed intervene with, with direct pressure, and you improvise some strips of cloth to try to make a tourniquet. At this point, let's say more members of your community arrive, some People have military-style tourniquets, and they start converting your improvisations oh, to 
two actual tourniquets. They Thank have goodness. litters, and they can move people to different places and other medical supplies. And you've accomplished a great deal in just a few minutes, I think. You identified triage levels for a number of patients, and you did the most good, indeed, for the most people. Now, in normal times, modern medicine will get to the scene with ambulances, helicopters, advanced trauma units, and having these aids are certainly going to end up in better outcomes than you can hope for in a survival scenario. I think you really have to realize that there are some hard realities that exist off the grid, and I actually talked a little bit about this in a video that I just That's what I just put up. Right, that you just put up. The survival mindset. Right. So think about these victims... And who do you think would survive if modern medical care was not available? This lady may not, and maybe even the young, the the last lady may not. Cause, the bleeding, yeah, with yeah, the amputation. That's tough. Maybe the young woman who has with a, infections, right? And the spine, even, spine, even the spinal injury. Oh gosh, yes, absolutely. Because there's some injury there. She could get infected, and if you get infected, absolutely, and have a spinal injury, you've got a real problem. A lot of complications. <clears throat> Now, of course, you want to have a hospital tent. If you don't have a hospital, mm -hmm. you have to have some kind of medical, your group has to have some kind of medical facility that people can go to if they have medical issues and a base of operations for the group medic. Now, once you've determined all these tri triage priorities, you got to get your victims to where the bulk of your medical supplies are if you can't get them to a hospital. If your survival group is bugging out, that's probably going to be a tent. And the materials you'll need for traumatic injuries are going to be different than those that are required for infectious disease outbreaks. That's something that you have to realize, that you really don't want your people with possibly contagious infectious disease to be with your people who broke a leg. Right. Because or, or who have an open wound. The victims of this particular scenario should not be in the same tent with people who are trying to get over the flu, right. for example. Or a pneumonia. Or a pneumonia. Right. Exactly. Or things like that. Some coughing, sneezing issue. Exactly. Now, the furnishing of your furnishings of your hospital tent should be minimalist in nature. You're going to need a work surface. You're going to need a wash basin, an examination area, maybe a procedure table. You need lighting, of course. You need waste bins to throw trash and medical waste. And you need cots or bed spaces. And you need bedding. That's right. And you need bedding. The more areas that you can be wiped down and disinfected, easily the better so in other words no fabrics right you don't want to bring your couch from home or right. anything like the that. the least amount of fabrics and if you have fabrics use cotton because you can wash it and you can bleach it right and you can boil it right even even plastic sheeting may be something that you could use wouldn't be comfortable for your patients but it might be easier to clean than just about Absolutely. anything else at a bare minimum, your supplies should include a number of things. You need a bandage scissors uh, or an EMT shear so you can expose the injuries so you can get a good look at them. Of course, you need gloves and masks. And in, in the case of infectious diseases, you need probably face shields and gowns and Aprons. all that stuff. Right. You have right. you have an actual pandemic kit. There, Yes, I do. On your I store have, at store.dimmerbloom.net. Right, with coveralls and aprons and face shields and hoodies and boot covers and all, all kinds sorts of, of stuff. unbelievable things. I just want to say something before you continue your list, that your list is abbreviated. Yes, this is a bare minimum. A bare minimum. Right, so... If you really want to see an extensive list in our book, Survival Medicine Handbook, actually all three of the versions, but especially the last one, 
we really focused on every little tiny thing I could think of for each of the types of kits. And the last one is That's the field hospital. Field hospital, yes. We're talking about surgical instruments and things to chart with and things to entertain the patient and things to feed the patient utensils and cups and plates and how to wash those separately and large amounts of disinfectants and different types of buckets depending on what you're cleaning, whether it's clothing or any utensils or or instruments. You can have different places that you're going to wash each of those types of things. So um, you can continue your list, but there's so much more that goes into it. Absolutely. But of course, you're going to want to have things like antiseptics. You're going to want to have a great assortment of gauze bandages and pads, rolls, uh, multi-trauma dressings, non-stick dressings. You're going to want tourniquets and, and blood clotting dressings. You're going to want pressure dressings, elastic wraps, cold packs, hot packs, triangular bandages to make slings, splints for well, all sorts of different reasons, 36-inch splints, smaller splints, mylar blankets, regular blankets, various kinds of tape, medical tapes, or duct tape that could even work, mm-hmm. iPads for eye injuries, wound closure, closure strips like Steri-Strips, tincture of benzene, benzoin, which is a liquid adhesive. You want a suture kit, staple kit, uh, laceration tray, uh, hemostats for clamping off bleeding vessels, a stethoscope, a blood pressure cuff, medications, a thermometer. Oh, it's on and on. So much stuff. That on you and need. on. <laughs> That's all the time we have for this week, guys. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Survival Medicine Hour with Joe and Amy Alden. We'll be back next time. You've been listening to the Doom and Bloom Hour with medical preparedness experts Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. Check out our website at www.doomandbloom.net for hundreds of informative articles about survival medicine, gardening, natural remedies, medical supplies, and lots of other good stuff. Contact us, send your email to drbonespodcast at aol.com or use the contact form on the main page of the website. See you next week.